0: Go on. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, one of the three wise men? No. One of the innkeepers? No. to answer. Call rejected. But it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay. Um, you tell me then, because... I'm door holder number three. I'll be holding doors. That's amazing. Holding doors for who? Um, probably um Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? Yeah. Okay. And what did you do? And I was like, I'm a door holder. Get in there. Let's go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. And, and and maybe because there's no room, I'll probably be just there. Be like. Just coming in and then I'll just slam, them in, slam the door in their face. <laughs> Is that your style role? I'll probably, maybe. I'll probably be dressed up as a door. I don't think you're going to be a door. I think you're going to be a door holder. No, I'll have to wear, like, brown. Really? Yeah, probably. Excellent. That's, well, that's really smart, Milo. Door holder number three. Well... Merry Christmas, it's good to see you all. We're glad you come to worship with us today. I don't know if you've come from a long way away or if you've just come from right down the street, but we are glad that you've chosen to spend time reflecting on the birth of Jesus today. And that's really what we've come to do. It's a very simple task that we have in front of us, which is just to reflect on the meaning of the fact that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and the implications of that for our world and for our lives. And so what I wanna do is help you ponder that just by looking at the very simple birth narrative of Jesus in Luke chapter two, the one that many of you are probably very familiar with, and see if there might be a few things there that we haven't caught before as we've looked at that. But as we watched our friend there get excited about being door hole number three, the thing that I want you to see in the narrative tonight is that the narrative is not just meant to be uh, mysterious and grand and big and bright. It's also there as an invitation to you. It's there as an invitation to join God in the story that he's telling, that you have a role to play. It might be door holder number three. It might be some other role, but the incarnation is the message of God that through his son you can have salvation from your sin and that you can join him in his work in the world, that he has purpose and meaning for you in your life. It's an invitation to you that God has come in the flesh, not just to redeem you for one day so that you would live with him in heaven, but to redeem you for today so that you could serve and walk with him and find purpose and meaning in life. So we're gonna walk through the story. It's told in three very distinct parts and there are clear themes to each of these parts. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter two. We're gonna spend the next 25 minutes just reflecting together on the birth of Jesus in this narrative. If you don't have the scriptures with you, we will have it on the screen for you so you can follow along there. So here's what I want you to see. As we begin in Luke chapter two, verse one, we find these words. Our first section of the story begins this way. It says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child and while they were there the time came for her to give birth Now, this story begins in these first six verses, and it may seem to you like it's just a bunch of historical details, but what it really is is a claim by God that he's in control of everything that's happening, not just in this story, but in all the world and down through all the halls of history, that he is in absolute control. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, being Caesar Augustus, it was a man named Octavian at this time, who ruled from just a little bit before Jesus was born until a little bit after Jesus was born. He was the emperor of Rome. He had the authority to call for a census throughout the entire world, and what that means is the entire Roman world, which at that point in history was most of the world. They ruled over most of the world. Now, Octavian was the Caesar who followed Julius Caesar. How many are familiar with Julius Caesar? Okay, so you've heard that name. You know that he was probably murdered on the Senate floor in Rome. He was the first Roman emperor, who declared himself to be divine. And Octavian was his sort of anointed follower. But what had happened after Caesar's death, Julius Caesar's death, is that there was a fight for the emperorship between a man named Mark Antony, anybody heard of him, who made alliances with Egypt and tried to kind of bolster his claim to the throne that way. There was a man named Lepidus who no one ever knows because he didn't do a great job. He kind of fell by the wayside. So he wasn't really a player, but Octavian, battled Antony, really, for supremacy and a right to become emperor. Now, eventually, because of Octavian's political machinations and his skill as an orator and as a politician, he won out. And he takes the throne, Mark Anthony fades from history, and it's Octavian that is the one who's declaring that there will be a registration throughout all the Roman world. He wants to know for taxation purposes. He wants to know for the purposes of raising his army. He needs to understand exactly how much he's ruling over, how much he's conquered. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a uh, you know, it's a bit of a, a, uh, a play of saying, like, I'm in charge. That's what Octavian is saying. I'm ruling over all of this. And there's a reason that this narrative begins with that discussion. It's not just to give a little bit of historical veracity, although Luke is famous for that. He loves to give us a little sense of like, here's all the dates, here's all the times. He's very much a dutiful historian. But he's doing more than that. What he's really doing is he's saying, Octavian believes he's in charge and causing things to happen throughout the globe, but it's really God who's on the move, bringing about his plan and his will. Now, the reason we know that is because Luke includes a few details in the text. Did you notice that he said that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, which is why he had to make his way to Bethlehem in order to be registered with Mary, who he is betrothed to, in order to be married. Did we catch that? Yes. Well, the reason he's saying that is because long, long ago, a thousand years, actually, before the birth of Jesus, God had made a promise to a king named David. And he said, the Messiah that I will send the redeemer, the rescuer, the one who will come to save my people and people from all nations will be from your house, will be from your line. He will be your descendant. That's a huge promise to David and Luke is bringing that back to mind and he's saying a thousand years ago when David reigned he made that promise and he said that he would be from your house. So Joseph is the fulfillment and Mary of that promise. But then there's one other thing that he's doing because a little bit after that a prophet named Micah came on the scene And in chapter five, verse two of Micah in the Old Testament, we're told that the Redeemer would not just be from the house and line of David, but that he would also be born in the city of Bethlehem. Well, we have a problem because God chose a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary and they don't live in Bethlehem. So we've got to figure out how to get them to Bethlehem. Now, just for a moment, back up and put yourself in the place of the Lord and just imagine, okay, I've said my Redeemer will be born in Bethlehem. How am I gonna accomplish this? And you've got any means at your disposal, because you're the Lord, you could do what you did in terms of giving Mary and Joseph the name of Jesus. Send an angel who says to them, you're to name this child Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. That's an option, do we see this, yes? Gabriel could have come back. He could have visited Mary and Joseph again, said, you know what, it's getting time, it's getting close. Remember, there's a prophecy about Bethlehem. I'm gonna need you to go to Bethlehem and they could have quietly gotten on their donkey and headed down to Bethlehem in order for the child to be born there, which, by the way, would have prevented the traffic jam that prevented them from having any room in an inn. But that's not the way God chose to do this, is it? God determined to cause a king on high somewhere who has no idea what's happening in the backwaters of Nazareth or in Bethlehem to declare a census that will cause Mary and Joseph to then be moved to go to Bethlehem so that all his prophecies will be fulfilled, so that Jesus will be the fulfillment of everything God has promised and said. So do you see that what God is saying here in these first six verses is not just historical details. It's a claim to say, I know that Rome thinks they're in charge. I know that many earthly rulers think they're in charge, but I rule over everything. I bring it about in just the way that I determine at just the time that I determine, and no one will prevent me from accomplishing my work. Now that's the first theme of the story, but why is God telling it that way to us here? (coughs) And I said, I think that what God is doing is he's removing barriers to help us see our role in his work, because one of the barriers that we sometimes think about when it comes to whether or not we would join God in his work is we think, you know, maybe I will spend my life trying to to accomplish things for God and nothing will come of it. And God is comforting us by saying, I am in control, I will bring about my work. The incarnation is a message to you and I to trust God, to rest in his power, and then get busy. Get to work, joining him in the things that he's given us to do. What an invitation that is. Now, the story turns here and it takes a left turn in a way that we wouldn't expect. So let's put our eyes back in the passage, or back up on the screen there and we'll see it, so he has spoken of his power and his complete control, and then he turns in verse seven, and he gives the most simple sentence describing the birth of Jesus. Here it is, the time has come for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Which, by the way, if all the people of the house and line of David have come to Bethlehem, in order to be registered because of the census, who are the people that are not making room for Mary and Joseph to have a child? Joseph's family are the ones who are saying, sorry, no room. We're not gonna give up our space for you. You get to have the baby in a manger, in an animal stall. But in this one simple sentence, friends, hear me now, because here's the humility of our Lord that he's about to put on displacing. I'm gonna do everything in these next set of verses in a way that you do not expect. Everything's gonna be upside down, everything's gonna be different than how you would expect the king of the universe to come into the world, and I'm gonna show you again and again that I'm gonna turn your world upside down, completely and utterly upside down, and I'm gonna defy every single one of your expectations, beginning with this. When a king is born, there should be a royal decree that is pages and pages long, yes? And when this king is born, there's one sentence and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. The minimalism of Luke is meant to just grab your attention. You go, no, no, this is not the way you announce the birth of a king. This is not the way you announce the birth of the savior of the universe. And watch, it goes on further, because not only then is it only one sentence, not only are we told he's laid in an animal stall as his first resting place, then we find this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So now all of a sudden we've shifted from a one sentence description of the birth of Jesus into fields with shepherds who mean nothing to nobody. Why are we all of a sudden talking about shepherds? And then he says this, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, Now, let me just draw your attention to a few things there. Now, the first is the manger. It's an animal stall. It's where Jesus is laid. That's the first indicator that God is doing everything different than what we'd expect. I, well, the second, the, the shortness of that sentence, and then the fact that he's laid in a manger. Now, I just, I've been pondering this. I've been thinking about this. Anybody know how tall Mount Everest is? I have a picture of it here for you. Anybody wanna shout out? You know how tall Mount Everest is, anybody? Fantastic, some of you have climbed it, clearly. It's about five and a half miles high. I heard five miles shout out there. Yeah, about 29,000 feet, about five and a half miles high. That probably does not do it justice. But just imagine now, here's what I've been trying to picture. What kind of throne would be appropriate for the king who's being born in this manger? Let's just imagine for a moment that we could carve a five and a half mile high throne out of that mountain. Just imagine we had the tools, the skill, the ability, and we carved an ornate, strong, massive throne tall throne. Now imagine, having carved that throne, that we gathered all the gold in the entire world and melted it down and covered that throne in gold. Are you beginning to get the picture? Can you see it in your minds? Now imagine we could dig up every precious gem and jewel, every piece of jade, every diamond, every sapphire, every ruby, and we could cover that throne in all of those jewels. Now imagine we could orchestrate the precipitation in the air and the clouds in such a way that rainbows perpetually bounce back and forth, surrounding that throne in a myriad of light and beautiful color. Imagine what that would look like. It'd be quite a throne, yes? That throne would not be sufficient for the king who's been born. It would not be enough. Isaiah 66 says that the Lord makes the earth his footstool. The entire earth is not a throne sufficient for this king. And he has lowered himself so low in his incarnation that he was laid in a manger as a helpless child. Friends, do you see how far he's come crossing heaven and earth and lowered himself for you? There is no longer a barrier to join God in his work because you don't have to, he has turned on its head the the ethic of self-advancement in the world to say you must figure out a way to be enough, to do enough, to accomplish enough, to be accepted, not just by one another but by God himself. He's turned that on his head and said no, I've come for you and I've lowered myself to the lowest of low places. And then after being laid in a manger, Luke continues the narrative, and we're all of a sudden, as I said, in the midst of shepherds. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now maybe, as you've heard someone talk about this narrative, there's been some discussion of shepherds and how they weren't that educated or they were incredibly dirty or maybe they weren't that trustworthy. But friends, I want you to understand this. Throughout the scriptures, shepherds are always spoken of positively. Shepherds are not spoken of negatively in the scriptures. Shepherds are positively spoken of, but here's what they are. They're common, they're ordinary. It's not a prestigious job. But the answer to why God chooses to announce the birth of his son to shepherds first, not in the halls of royalty, but to shepherds in a field, is because of what verse 10 says, what the angels say. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. Not some of the people, not the special people, not the prestigious people, not the royal people, will be for all the people. And God says that the shepherds as if to say, I'm proving it by who I'm telling. They're ordinary, they're common. And maybe you felt like I'm so common that how could God use me? How could I have a role in the work of God in the world? And God delights in common things. You don't need the world's greatest intellect or bank account You don't need the greatest set of skills or abilities. You simply need to be ordinary, common, human, and God delights. And he's declared it in the incarnation. He's shouting it out in the way he tells the story. Friend, I come to common people and I come into common moments. The shepherds, by the way, are available, (coughs) pardon me, are available to hear about this birth because they're doing their job working the late shift. They're keeping watch over their flocks when? By night. It's the commonness, the ordinariness of their task that makes them available to do the work of God and to receive the role that God has for them. That's the second thing. Now the third thing that God says, I'm flipping everything upside down, is when the angels come, the first angel comes and he says, fear not. Now, it's the normal response of a human being to get really afraid when an angel shows up on the scene. If you've read through the Bible at all, that's one of the things I'll tell you. If you never read through the Bible, when you do, one of the things you're gonna find is that when angels show up, people get really scared. And that makes a lot of sense. And so they're afraid. And so the angel says, fear not. But then he doesn't just say, you've got to figure out how to not be afraid by playing a trick on your mind or by doing some kind of, you know, way of dealing with this. You gotta figure out how to still yourself. He says, no, no, I'm bringing you the news that's going to take away the fear. He says, fear not, Lord, I bring you good news, and that word is the same word for gospel. I bring you the gospel. I bring you the good news that God has come and sent a savior to you. That's what takes away their fear. Fear not, Lord, I bring you good news, great joy. What God is declaring in the incarnation is that he's turning fear into joy and fear into peace. I bring you good news of great joy will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, three things, a savior, one who can take away the penalty for your sin, who is Christ, the promised one of God. He is the anointed, the chosen. That's what it means to be the Christ, to be the one chosen by God. He is the Lord. And in this context, the Lord means he is divine. He is the Savior, he is the Christ, he is the Lord. And because that good news, that gospel good news of that Christ, Savior, Lord has come to them, then now, thankfully he shared that with them because one angel is intimidating enough and what's gonna happen next? The sky is now filled with myriads of angels, hosts of angels, Flooding the sky because the news is too good for just one angel to deliver. And they erupt into the sky and they declare what? Glory to God in the highest. That doesn't mean the highest kind of glory. That means we are worshiping God in the highest place, in heaven. We are glorifying the angels in heaven, God. Why? Because He has declared on earth peace to men. What is it that we, the angels, surround the throne of God and say, you're amazing, you're astounding, we glorify you, we praise you, we're astounded by you. Oh my goodness, what is it that's causing the angels to do that? Glory to God in the highest place because and and on earth, peace to men, peace to those with whom he is well pleased. He's well pleased with all who receive him through his son. All who see that his son is the gift that he has sent so that people would be set free from the penalty of their sin, be reconciled to him as a good and loving father, and then walk in the role that he has for them. That's what the incarnation is shouting to us. Now, friends, here's the last part. I said the narrative has three acts, yes? So the first act is God saying, I'm in charge Octavian may think he's in charge, he's not, I'm in charge. The second act is him saying, I'm turning everything upside down, I'm removing every barrier that you might possibly think could stand in the way of you joining the work I have designed for you and knowing me. And now here's the last part, the last act, and it's very, very straightforward what God is saying in this. He expects you to respond. He expects you to respond to the news of the birth of his son. Now can you just imagine for a moment that this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If God sent his son to earth and we ignored that fact, would that be right or appropriate? Surely not. If God has left his throne on high and taken on humanity, of course it requires a response, and that's exactly what the final part of the narrative is meant to show us. Look at what he says right here at the end of chapter two. Beginning in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Do you see what they're doing? The angels said, this will be a sign to you. In other words, that's an invitation, go see the child. You will recognize him because you'll find him in Bethlehem. He'll be wrapped in swaddling cloths, he'll be lying in a manger, so go and find the child. And they take the invitation and say yes, well, go, here's the first expected response. Go to Jesus. The incarnation is him coming to you, and the expectation is that you would then turn your face to him and say, I want to see all that you are, Jesus. I want to receive you, you have come. You are the gift to me, and I will receive that. That's the first expected response. So friends, you may have come tonight with friends, with family, <coughs> and you don't believe in Jesus, but I want you to hear just loud and clear tonight that the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus is an invitation to you, and he expects you to respond. I pray that you would. I pray that you would sense the movement of the Spirit of God in your heart. There's, there's not a preacher's words on the earth that can make you respond, so I, I'm not going to try to do that, but what I will tell you is this. The Spirit of God is constantly at work drawing people to Him through His Son. And My prayer is tonight that you would hear that, sense that movement of the Spirit in your heart and yield to it, that you would yield to it as He is moving because the incarnation is the declaration that He does do that. He is doing it. He expects you and I to respond. The second response is shown to us by Mary. So the the shepherds, they go. And then they tell, in verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger as they had been told. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they begin to tell everyone who's present in the manger about what the angels had said to them. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then Mary gives us our last call to respond to this news of the incarnation. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them, in her heart. In other words, she didn't let them stay on the surface. She took them in and deeply considered them. She pondered, What is the meaning of this? What are you doing, God, that you would send these shepherds and you've spoken to them by these angels? And she ponders up all those things. And then here's what she does The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That may seem like a little throwaway sentence at the end of this narrative, but it's not. It's evidence that Mary obeyed God. He had said, name your child Jesus. She is obeying both the law to have her child circumcised so that Jesus will be the fulfillment of the law so that he can die for our sins and none of his own. But also, she obeys by naming him the name that was given to her. That's no small thing. So the expected response of God that he's painting for us in this narrative is not just that we would respond to the person of Jesus and come to him, come and see him as the shepherds did and receive him, but also that we'd obey him as Mary did. The incarnation, friends, for those of us who believe is a call to yield our entire lives to the purposes of God, to take up the role that he gives to us, not to live our lives, in some kind of vague consideration of it over here once a year for a short amount of time and then to go on living our lives in any way that we choose or that pleases us. The incarnation makes a claim upon us and that claim is that we should obey all that God commands of us and delight in those commands and love to follow him day by day by day. He's come to save us and he's come to rule us as our Lord. Praise God, praise God. Let's pray, and then we're gonna take time to light candles. I'll explain the significance of that here for us in just a moment. So Father, we thank you for the beauty and joy of the incarnation. Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed Savior. You are indeed Christ. You are indeed Lord. We want you to be all of those things, not anything less. Pray that you would cause your word to dive deep into our hearts and that we'd ponder it as Mary did and the meaning of it the meaning of it for us tomorrow and the next day and the next. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.